Yeah. <laughs> it can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace at least and a better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans have Hey everybody, welcome to the show Community Spread. I'm your host Kevin Lundell. On the pod today we have Adrian Andrews. And Adrian is a really incredible person and I'm about to share with you her bio. So be prepared. We've got uh, quite a list of accomplishments coming your way. Adrian is the Assistant Vice President for Diversity and Chief Diversity Officer at Weber State University, where she has worked for almost 16 years. She holds Bachelor of Arts degrees in Political Science and Women's Studies from the University of Utah, a Master's degree in Women's Studies from Minnesota State University's Manakota, I probably messed that up, a master's in political science from Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, and a graduate certificate in conflict resolution and mediation from the University of Utah, where is she is completing a PhD in education, culture, and society. She has worked in a variety of government capacities, including as the director of the Center for Youth Policy and Programs for the State of New Jersey. Adrian currently serves as a member of the McKay and Layton Hospital Governing Board, the Boys and Girls Club of Weber Davis Honorary Base Commander of the 75th Air Base Wing at Hill Air Force Base, trustee with the Larry H. Miller Charitable Trust, and as the vice chair of the Ogden Diversity Commission. So wow, what an amazing opportunity it is going to be for us to have this conversation with Adrian. You are going to get to hear about all of the reasons why she is passionate about diversity, equity, and justice. Because if we find ways to help all in our community find that equity, find what they need and help them and raise our community, we all get better. And that is what's so important about the work that Adrian is doing, the work of the Ogden Diversity Commission uh, that has been assembled and is doing incredible work. You're going to get to hear a little bit about that as well. I recently actually got to see some of their work in action. Recently, there was a citizen's petition brought forth to the Ogden City Council. And the petition was that they wanted to name a street down by 2nd Street in Ogden, Fort Bingham Road. Now, you know, at first glance, Fort Bingham Road, uh, apparently there was a fort at that time. I don't know a lot about this history, but that's why we have a diversity commission. And the city council was wise enough to reach out to the diversity commission and say, hey, let us know about the, the history of Fort Bingham and if it would be appropriate for us to name and honor this fort by having a name, a road named permanently after this fort. Well, the Diversity Commission went out and they found uh, a man by the name of James Singer, who is the co-founder of the Utah League of Native American Voters. And he wrote a really important letter back to the Ogden Diversity Commission about the problematic nature of Fort Bingham. And I just wanted to read a few excerpts from that letter, and we'll post the, it in its entirety to the show notes. Fort Bingham represents the collision of two worlds. The fact that a fort was needed shows that the interactions between indigenous peoples and the Mormon settler colonists was violent. Not long after Mormons began establishing settlements outside of the Salt Lake Valley, clashes between these native nations and Mormons began. 
1865, the tension had reached a breaking point, and the Utes and allies from other nations joined to form a front against the Mormon settlers. The devastating Black Hawk War cost hundreds of lives and broke communities on both sides. So the petitioners for the Fort Begum Road here in Ogden kind of dismissed a lot of this history. And they said, no, 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 the Shoshone uh, tribe, which is more of the tribe here in, in Ogden, was not really involved in the war in the same way these other tribes were in Salt Lake. And so, and, and Fort Bingham was a place where the Shoshone tribe actually lived um, for, a, for a period of time because of a shortage of food. And so this is a, this is a different kind of fort. This is the kind of fort that uh, was really friendly to the Native American tribes in the area. And this is what uh, David Singer had to say about that. Quote, Settler colonization of the valleys in Utah upended entire lifeways and the stability of their societies. Livestock destroyed ecosystems that sustained indigenous nutrition. Rivers and streams were diverted. Open country was fenced off. In the informational material presented to the city council, it states the Shoshone people lived in the fort in the mid-1850s due to shortage of food. The question that should be considered is why they were experiencing this hardship. He goes on to explain how our ancestors, Mormon pioneers, were the cause of this hardship. That because they believed in manifest destiny, destiny that this land was uh, theirs to be taken. And so this is a problematic time period that needs to be studied, needs to be recognized, and not necessarily honored by a permanent name for our street. So I appreciate the work that the Diversity Commission has done to get this information and to pass it back along to our city council members. There were a few city council members who really heard this, who understood this, who took it to heart and understood why this is problematic. There were a few others who didn't, frankly, and didn't want to hear it, just thought, well, this is a part of our history and we need, to, we need, to, we need it there, regardless of whether it's problematic. This is actually an ongoing matter and hasn't had actually been voted on. I believe the petitioner uh, is going to make some revisions. I'm not sure what those are going to be, but it's going to continue to uh, take place here in our community. I just really wanted to highlight this aspect as before we have our conversation with Adrian, because the work she's doing, the work of the Diversity Commission is really important. And it really shows to us that history should not be written or engraved in our streets just by the white majority. And that our history shouldn't be whitewashed, that we should learn from our past mistakes, and that we should really elevate the history of those who were oppressed. And so that we can understand and know that equity, inclusion, and justice is so vitally important to our future as a society. So with that, our conversation with Adrian Andrews. Look how far we don't came, we made it to this land to surprise. Though the prophecy says we all been to a brass. Spread the word, let it be known the heaven set us around. Hey everybody, we are so lucky to have Adrian Andrews with us today on the pod. Adrian, how are you doing? I am terrific. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's absolutely our pleasure. You know, I first heard Adrian it was in the summer, and I specifically remember what was happening. I was mowing my lawn, and I was listening on Facebook to 
the Ogden Diversity Commission meeting that they were having with uh, the chief of police. And there was some back and forth, lots of talking going on in that meeting. And uh, at some point in this meeting, this like incredibly powerful woman came on and she was just speaking truth to power. And I was like, whoa, who is this person? And I pulled my phone out. I pushed pause. I screenshot it and I sent it to a, a friend of ours that, who I knew would know, uh, Angel Castillo. And I was like, who is this woman? And she was like, oh, that's Adrian. She's awesome. I was like, well, yeah, I, I know that now, but... Angel is amazing, and she's such an advocate for Ogden. I love getting the chance to work with her. And occasionally, we actually go eat Thai together. So it's it's really good when we're not in pandemic mode. Yes, yes. She is a very, very good advocate here in Ogden. So uh, that is one of the things that um, you do. You have lots of hats you wear, <laughs> lots of different things you do. But tell us just a little bit about the Ogden Diversity Commission. Um, why was that set up and um, what are some of the things that some of its goals and some of the things that you do um, with the Ogden Diversity Commission? So the Ogden Diversity Commission actually came out of um, a series of conversations I had with Bill Cook, who was at the time the executive director of Ogden City Council. I was new in my leadership role at Weber State as the special assistant to the president for diversity and I had explained to him that I was going to be setting up meetings with the community to talk about um, their needs and interests and how the university either was or was not meeting their needs. And he said to me, I really wanna do that too, but for the city. And I said, then we should do it together because why should we be bothering people twice if we can just get them at the same time? And we ended up doing 16 focus groups representing um, racial and ethnic diversity, religious diversity, age, gender, sexual orientation, um, status, veteran status, in Spanish, in English, just all of these different groups of folks to ask them um, basically what their needs were, how they wanted to access the university and or the city, what ways they wanted us to communicate with them, what their critical issues were, and how we could work with them moving forward. And from those 16 focus groups, we actually pulled all of the folks together for a luncheon to share what we had learned from them. And out of that conversation came a response that I had not anticipated, which was, you know, every decade or so, the city or the university decides to do these outreach efforts and they get all the information from us. And then they- Adrian's got it in air quotes, outreach. Yeah, outreach. <laughs> <laughs> they get the information from us and then they say, hey, we care. And then they disappear. And I was taken aback uh, because, because I was like, I'm showing up. I'm you know interested in this work. I'm committed to yeah. making sure that we're serving all of our communities, right? And then there were some other people in the meeting who were like, yeah, you know, this, this happens. And then you guys get what you want from us and then you disappear. And I said, I can only speak for myself in Weber State. I'm new in my role, but I am committed to showing up. I am committed to being engaged and involved. And I'm willing to keep doing it until you trust me. And Bill agreed in the same way for Ogden City. And we had partners at the Tech College. And we had other community partners that we were building relationship with who agreed that they would do that and that we would start having these community conversations. 
And we were so fortunate that um, Colette Mercier was the president of the Tech College at the time. And she allowed us to utilize space at the Tech College to have public meetings to talk about issues of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and how we as a community wanted to work together, wanted to work with Ogden City University, the Tech College, and other anchor groups to address the needs that people have that weren't being addressed. Cool. And, and so we, when was this happening? When when was this like brainstorming and this like back and forth? Like, and when did it kind of progress into the, the, the commission that we see today? It started over eight years ago, which is just important to me, right? This is the kind of this is the kind of stuff people do not see. The work that it takes to start to make even the little bit as like kind like little bit of progress where you can start having meetings is eight right. years worth of work. So, so for four years ish, three and a half, four years, we kept having meetings every about six weeks. We would invite all the people who wanted to come. We had food. We had drinks. And we started creating a plan, a plan for how we wanted to work together and what the expectations would be. And during one of those meetings, um, and I facilitated the bulk of those meetings, along with Bill Cook and Mary Brown and um, Rhonda Loretson, who was at the Tech College at the time, and, and, and all of these other people, Stanley Ellington, who was the president of the Ogden NAACP. And at some point, somebody said, well, why are you doing this? You know, you're taking this from the community. The community should be leading out on these issues. And I said, hey, hands up. Um, I don't have to lead this. It was, Nothing was happening. I wanted to start conversations. Here we are. But if you're telling me somebody else wants to lead out and coordinate these efforts to help this, whatever this is to happen, I'm still willing to show up and be a part of it. I don't have to be in front of people. And I think that that for a lot of people that was sort of surprising because mm. it's not about me. And my philosophy throughout this process was one of consensus building. And that meant that as we would go, I would say consistently, consistently, do we have consensus? Are we agreed with this so that we move on to the next step? And then people would either say yes or no. And if they said no, we'd step back. And what is it that people are disagreeing on or have concerns about. And until we worked through it, we didn't move forward. And we continued that way. And so it would be a step forward, two steps back, sometimes five steps forward. And then you'd get two more steps forward. And then it would be five steps back. And you'd be like, oh my gosh, when are we ever going to get this done? And I would have different folks coming at me saying, Adrian, can't we just say, this is what we're going to do? And I said, of course you can do that. But if everybody doesn't come together to get wherever it is we're going, you're not going to have buy-in. You're not going to have commitment. You're not going to have interest. And what we're, trying to, what we're trying to build is, is willingness and to demonstrate commitment to understanding and working together rather than just making decisions and moving forward. And I know that that was hard for a lot of people to hear, but then suddenly Suddenly, we were at this place where we had a diversity charter that we're presenting to Ogden City Council and to the mayor and his executive team. And we have the president of the university, who at the time was Chuck White. We had um, President Mercier. We had community partners and leaders all showing up to affirm this document, this diversity charter that we had created 
about how we as a community were committed to working with each other and to supporting each other. And we all signed it. And community members who attended signed that document. And Bill Cook is just a sweetheart because he actually had all of those documents um, photographed and framed for me. And a copy of all of that with the signatures hangs in my office. Awesome. And it reminds me of, you know, my commitment to be in this work, but that it's not about me. It's about all of us. It's about Ogden. It's about making sure that voices that aren't being heard or represented, that space gets made, that access gets provided, that opportunities are opened up so that the folks who haven't felt like they have a voice or who have been excluded from having a voice have access. And so out of this diversity charter, one of the things was to create a diversity commission. And historically, Ogden had had a multicultural commission, but it had suffered some some struggles and there were leadership changes at the city level and it sort of fell to the wayside. But the process that resulted in the creation of Ogden's Diversity Commission was one where we had full engagement from the community and other anchor institutions and nonprofits and community members who just wanted to be a part of this thing that was happening. And so it's very different. And in fact, at this moment, I believe next week, we are, um, we are interviewing potential candidates to join the commission because my term is ending. I will have maxed out the time I can be on the commission. We are celebrating our fifth anniversary this fall. Oh, wow. So please know there will be some sort of celebration where it's still a question mark what it will look like, but we are excited to celebrate that for five years, we've been working to build a better community and things that have come out of the commission are amazing. Things like um, the mayor and staff worked with the police chief and hired um, a diversity community advocate, Diana Lopez, who's phenomenal. And she creates creates amazing partnerships with our community. Um, Since this all happened, we are now on our third police chief. I've had the fortune of working with all of them. They've been great. And they all have different strengths and and interests. And Chief Young, who is new as of last month, hit the ground running. Within his first couple of weeks in office, the Diversity Commission hosted a community conversation with police chiefs from Ogden, Roy, um, Weber State, North Ogden, Riverdale, and the Weber County Sheriff. Sorry, I had to, I'm counting on my fingers trying to make sure I don't miss anyone. And, and we got questions in from the community. Everything from what are you doing to increase diversity representation amongst your officers and leadership to how do we build better relationships between our community members and the police departments? And it was fabulous. But I want you to think about how much positive will a police chief who's been in the role for three weeks has to have to be willing to go into a public forum on Zoom, no less, where you are going to ask anything and everything and you just don't know. And he showed up, he was in it, and then committed to continuing to have those community conversations 
throughout the rest of the year. It's really important, really right? important, you know, like, and the work, like, you know, I don't think people, I mean, when I think about the work you did to try to, to build that coalition um, in that process, in that, in that, you know, eight year period, you know, eight years ago and, and bringing in these different voices and building those, those that coalition. I think a lot of us, uh, myself included, tend to just like, you know, scream at stuff that's going on and <laughs> not, you know, getting mad and frustrated. Um, but the, the, a lot of that work is, is long, long, long-term thinking and a lot of this building coalitions and, to be able, and that, all of that work led to a moment where there was a police chief that was listening that whole, you know, the, the deputy chief who was Chief Young back then was listening to these conversations, hearing you. I mean, he is the kind of guy that listens and hears, which is which is important, right? Um, and hopefully we'll see some more of that going through. But but all of that was taking place during that coalition that made it possible for him to have the confidence to come on and know that he's got some people there that, 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 you know, he he's worked with before and, and to come on and to be a face and to have these conversations that, that didn't happen overnight. And that happened a lot of because of the work the diversity commission has done over the years. Along with Diana Lopez building relationships and bridges, along with Viviana Felix, who is the diversity officer for Ogden city. That's a role that never existed before. And when it was created, it was a halftime position. And clearly, once she was in the role, we all realized this is not a halftime position and pushed to, to move her to full time and to get awesome. her in the spaces that she needs to be. And I mean, she's just been a phenomenal asset, not only to the Diversity Commission because she supports us, but to the administration. Um, she's helped bring in equity, diversity, and inclusion training. She's helped facilitate conversations around um, human resources and questions about hiring and access. And she's been able to do that because she has the commission that's bouncing these questions and ideas around, but she also sees what's happening in real time at the city and the ability to ask questions that other people maybe just have never thought of because those are not issues they've had to face or deal with. And so she brings those issues out and is cultivating and educating the leaders um, in, in city government with things that they should be seeing that they haven't seen in the past. And so this is work that yeah. <clears throat> not happened um, because Bill Cook and I had a conversation. This is work that happened because Bill and I had a conversation and we got other people to have that conversation and it just got bigger. And it wasn't just about us. It was about Ogden. And awesome. that's, what, that's what makes it continue to be just the same yeah. thing. Yeah. So let's go a little bit bigger picture with, with Adrian here. Tell me, I mean, you're, you're, you're the chief diversity officer at Weber State. Um, obviously, all this work we just talked about with the work you've done with Ogden on diversity. Tell me, uh, why, what has motivated you to be on this path over these, this whole time. Um, and, and so tell me what that is and, and what are the things that, that drive you most? So I come from a family that is very social justice oriented, um, that has always done equity work. My grandfather, James Gillespie Sr. was the president of the Ogden NAACP chapter for 33 years when he had to step down for health reasons. My grandmother, Betty Gillespie, who I call Honey, 
stepped into that leadership role for a few years. And then when she needed to provide full-time care for my grandfather, she stepped out and other folks stepped in, folks like Betty Sawyer, um, Stanley Ellington, and just, um, just some really wonderful people uh, who were willing to fill the gap and address the needs of the community and not just the black community, but all communities that were being oppressed or excluded or minoritized or demonized in a way that is not consistent with who we say we are as a country. And so growing up in an environment where that was just what you did, that's always what I did. I always sought to um, build relationships and connections. And so I think that literally by virtue of the family I grew up in, this is the work that that was natural and normal to me to do. And I've just been fortunate enough to have it be my passion and be my career at the end of the day. That's Isn't that the best? I mean, it's the best when you can mesh your, your passions with your career um, because that's when uh, obviously you, you, you get your best work and you're happy and fulfilled. And so that's incredible that you were able to do that. Um, tell me a little bit about... You know, growing up in, in this family, obviously you have this icon as a grandfather who's who's president of the NAACP in Ogden for 30 years. You know, um, you're 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 a black family living in a predominantly white uh, community. Um, you know, at, at my house, there's not a lot of topics of discussion around race. Um, you know, just I, I, I kind of want to get a feel for what that is like growing up in Utah with that family and and how that led to you being you. Well, so the interesting thing is when it's you growing up, it's just what's normal, right? I mean, sure. I'm a second generation Utah. Um, my father grew up here in Ogden, Utah. He graduated from Ben Lomond. He went to Weber State. He was um, a police officer in Ogden City after he did two tours of Vietnam. And so this heritage here in Utah is very much, it's not new to me. There's history and yeah. roots in my family here. And while my mom was from Philadelphia and we spent summers in Philadelphia with our family and extended family, um, this was always a place that was my place and where I was from. And when I would go outside of Utah, people would ask me, what's it like to be black in Utah? there aren't a lot of black people. And, and I would say, well, it, it just is. But that's also realizing that when I went to elementary school, um, the first elementary I went to was EM Whitesides in Layton. And the black children in that school were me and my sisters. And then when we moved and I went to Sarah Jane Adams, it was me and Eddie. And Eddie Johnson was the other black student. And while I was a student there, it was the first time I'd seen a black teacher. And her name was Miss Brown, and she taught second grade, and I was going into fourth grade. And I said to my mom, I will go back to second grade to be in Miss Brown's class because, like, oh my gosh, this, this is a black teacher. I've never seen a black teacher. And of course, that was not going to be reality. I was going into fourth grade. I had Mrs. Bernard, she was phenomenal. Um, but I just remember being so excited to see someone who looked like me in that leadership space. Because when you're a kid, the people who have power and control are the educators, right? Your principals, your teachers, the people who work in that environment. And they've never seen anyone who looked like me in that environment. And suddenly there is someone who looks like me. 
And so it's probably an empowering, it was probably an empowering moment in a way. Absolutely. It, it affirmed what my parents had said all along, which is whatever it was I wanted to do or be, I could be, and they would support me to do it. And granted, that is not the experience every kid has. I don't care what your family looks like or what your financial background is, but I had that. But the fundamental difference is when you see someone like you doing something that you've never seen before, it makes the possibility real. And I think today about the fact that we have a Madam Vice President who is a multiracial woman who identifies as as Black and, and Asian. And there will never be a time in my son's recollection where that wasn't a possibility for a person of color to be in that role. And that's transformative. Absolutely transformative. Beautiful. And yeah, it's the sort of thing that when I think about um, my life and, and I just did every, all of those people in power and, and we're, we're there and, and it's not something that I had to think about or, or, um, you know, have that sort of those, that, that sort of thought and have that in my, in my life. So to hear that is just one, it's, it, it tells us even more how important things like the diversity commission is. Mm-hmm. how important that we we raise voices diverse voices in our community because it matters to someone like Adrian and it matters to you know all of the voices we've had on the, on this podcast is if we can elevate those voices and and have them in leadership it, it will matter to some kid and 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 help them progress in their life well and the other piece of this is Um, It's not just for people of color who suddenly see someone who looks like them represented in these roles. It's also for people who identify as white who've never seen people of color in these roles. And suddenly, something that didn't seem like reality or possible suddenly is reality and very much possible. And so it changes the way that we look at and see each other and understand each other and consider um, sort of what the possibilities are. And one of the reasons I would say that is because in this country, we have a history of deciding what people's, what they're, what we expect of them and what we will limit for them. And so do we expect, do we expect every person to go to college? No, because college isn't for everybody. You know, some people want to go to technical school. Some people don't want to have a career that requires technical school or college. And those things are all fine. But they're fine when people make that choice themselves, not when somebody else makes that determination for them. And so what I'm trying to express, and it feels like I'm doing a very bad job of it, is that when people of color are in roles that white people have never seen them in before, it transforms what they see people of color being able to do beyond that, right? And that's that's huge. So the representation matters um, for people of color, absolutely, because suddenly you see yourself mirrored in life doing something that you want to do. But it's also important because it says to people who may have never seen uh, people of color in these roles that those are things that people of color can do too. 
Yeah. And, and I think it really seems like when, you know, you talk about how a, a white person seeing somebody in that role can, can influence them. And I don't think that that person necessarily believes, oh, a, a black person can't be a teacher, but there is this subconscious um, reality that is, that is kind of the pillars of our society that, that, you know, Congress looks a certain way, the, pre the president of the United States, the vice president looks a certain way. And those unconscious pillars hold up our society and hold black, hold back our diversity. And, and they are there, those prejudices are there. And even if it's not like, oh, well, yeah, well, of, of course, you know, of course, but when they are in front of us, when, you know, Kamala Harris, Madam Vice President is there in front of us, it, uh, it is groundbreaking and does have that impact on, on everyone, like you said. Right. And so I think that that's just not something we really talk about very often. And so I think sometimes we talk about diversity work or equity work and inclusivity and people think it's, it's to make things better for, for this group of people who maybe have had a harder time or something's been going on. What, what we need to understand is it makes it better for everybody. Right. Anytime we can improve the quality of life of any group who's been marginalized or oppressed, it overall improves the quality of life of all of us. It does us no favors to have a community where people aren't educated, don't have access to health care or safe housing and clean water. Right. And so to pretend that, well, somebody chooses to live in that house. Somebody chooses to drink that water. That's really a, a skewed way of thinking about how much choice people have in their daily lives. And that's why the questions that the Diversity Commission raises or that town hall conversations on race raise or the community conversations raise, it's so important because we don't ask questions in ways that we are uncomfortable with. So a lot of the work of the Diversity Commission is to help people get comfortable being uncomfortable and being willing to lean in. And then an example that I will give you is, um, I don't think, Kevin, that you have ever wanted anyone to call you a racist. No, I don't, I don't think anybody really, I mean, most people would not want them to be called a racist. Right. There's some people who might revel in that title, yeah. but for the most part, no one wants to be called a racist. But if somebody called you a racist, What's your gut response, Kevin? I mean, a few years ago, I'd have been like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a racist. I have a black friend. <laughs> Great. Okay. And so, you know, our, our proximity to somebody provides us with plausible deniability, but not sure. really. Right. But instead of having that response, which is, no, I'm not, shut it down, move back, I'm not having this conversation with you. If instead of that response, if you lean into it and say, tell me or help me understand what I did to make you think that I am racist, which allows for the possibility that you are racist, which allows for the possibility that you may not even realize that you engage in behaviors or practices that are racist, which is unconscious bias which none of us likes to think that we have, but we've all got it, myself included. 
And that fundamentally changes the conversation from one that shuts everything down to a conversation where maybe you can help me see something in myself in the way that I speak or that I do something or that I respond that is inconsistent with who I believe I am, but that no one has ever pointed out to me in a way I've been able to hear. Yeah. We all have our blinders, our blind spots, right? And you can't, you can't see past those blind spots unless they're pointed out. And the hard work part, the hard work is to be, is to internalize when, when it gets, when it gets pointed out and to say, to say what you said, which is tell me more about that so that I can understand it so that I can lean into that and, and respond and, and try to try to make well, who I feel I am match the, the actions that I'm doing on the outside as well. So, yeah, and I, I think that that part of diversity work is some of the hardest work you will ever do. Because even though this is my life's work, I still get things wrong. I still learn with and from other people. I still pick up books and I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I not realize that? Right? Or I read stuff and I'm like, this is being published. What's the publication date on that? How is that being published in 2021? Right? That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but I have to be willing to own that I will never know all of the things, but that I can try as hard as I can to know as many of the things as I can. And when I don't know, I can say that I don't know. And then I can work either by myself or with others to find out. And that's the other thing. We don't give ourselves the grace of not knowing and being okay with not knowing in that moment, but the responsibility of then changing that in the next moment. Right, right. You said something a little earlier back where you talked about how, you know, part of the goals of the, of the diversity commission is to raise our entire community. And, you know, I think we've been taught as a society uh, that to raise one group means that it takes from another. You know, that it's this zero sum game. And, I, and I've actually been listening to, there's a new book out that I have not read yet, but I've listened to a couple of interviews with the author her name, and it's called the sum of us by Heather McGee. And um, she, she talks about, you know, she goes back into the civil rights era and how, you know, white communities would fill in their pools rather than swim with black, black folks during the, as integration happened and how we think of that as like the stark, Oh, how would they do that? But yet it's, it still happens all the time in more egregious ways, you know, and I heard her talk about, you know, the expansion of Medicaid and how Medicaid expansion was going to happen under, under president Obama, the federal government gave them all of this money to go to these States. They said, you can help your communities with their health care and we'll pay for it. And, Many communities, including Utah, uh, until we passed a proposition um, by by the voting, our, our community said, no, we're not going to take that because there's some sort of idea. And we know that that, that health care, uh, we know that it, it, it saves lives. We know that not responding and not expanding Medicaid cost lives. So in a much more, um, you know, real life, you know, in a real way, it was costing lives, but we know those lives disproportionately affect, affect our, our communities of color. And so there, there's this some, for some reason, I don't know what it is about our society or way we've pitched this, 
that in that moment, there must have been something like, well, if we, if we, if we prop up this group of people, then it's going to come out of something else. And what do you think, Adrian, what causes that? I mean, I'm, it's a large question. And what do you think about um, how, we, how we move past that? So if that's a very complex set of questions, actually. And because I was born and raised in Utah, um, while I am a, a practicing Presbyterian, people of the middle way, that's who we are, um, I am still very aware of the cultural and religious distinctions here in Utah for Latter-day Saints. Um, and part of that cultural tradition is being self-sufficient. It is about making sure that you have stock to take care of yourself in an emergency situation. And that's, that's a philosophical practice within the, the faith system. It's also a cultural practice in the communities that we live in. And so in many ways, there is what I would almost say a sense that if you work hard enough, you will be okay. And if you can't, there are resources you can go to, but those resources should be community-based resources. Those resources should not be government-based resources. So you end up with things like the Bishop's Storehouse or the Bishop's Warehouse, right? right? Where people can go for resources and food, um, which is awesome. But what it fails to acknowledge is that everyone is not a part of those traditions, of those faith traditions or belief systems. And so what do we do? What do we do for people who don't have a faith system or belief system? And as people in this country, based on our documents, as they read today, because clearly they have been modified, what do we say as a nation we believe in? that we will do to support and bolster each other up? How does that play out in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our states? And so here in Utah, because of the heritage and culture that is so dominant here, a sense of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, which is very much a Booker T. Washington um, frame of thinking about life, there's a resistance to having what some people would call intervention by government or engagement by government in those ways. Whereas other folks see that as that's a part of the system that we belong to in a democracy, that when we have needs, that we have the government to rely on to help us pull us out of those circumstances so that we can become contributing members of society. And so it's fundamentally a different way of seeing, understanding, and being in our government system. And so the only way out is through. And that's figuring out how to reconcile your personal belief systems, whether they are Latter-day Saint or they are Islam or Catholicism or whatever it is. It's reconciling that with who we are fundamentally as a country and what it is that we say we do as a democracy and how we treat our people. Recognizing that we did not always see our people as people, which means we have learned more and when we know better, we do better. And sometimes it takes us a very long time, too long to do the better that we should be doing, but we have moved the needle. And so we, I, we have we have moved the needle. You've moved the needle um, in doing that work. I, I 
I was thinking deeply for a second there. <laughs> As you were talking about that, you said you the way through is by reconciling your personal beliefs with how who we are as a country that seems like a lot of hard a lot of work for for a lot of folks for one i think you know who we are as a country like just starting there i think a lot of there's it's that depends on who you are and who you, how you see it you know are we going to be a multiracial multiethnic uh democracy or not i think th- those questions are are, you know, I obviously hope that we are going to, but I think that we're on the precipice of of, of deciding that as a country, really. Um, and that's where the team and then and, rec- and then recognizing and then re- like and then reconciling that with your personal beliefs, like boy, that just seems like a lot of hard work. I don't really have a question, but it was just like wow. <laughs> well, so, but that's I mean, at the end of the day, it's a, it's always a lot of hard work and the decision that you're making is whether or not you're going to pick it up and carry it with your neighbor or whether you're going to be a free rider and just get the benefits that come your way without having to put any skin into the game or you're going to be on the front lines trying to have discussions to figure out how do we get there what are things that we can do differently and one of the questions that i ask in work, in my professional life, in my personal life, in my activism life, is what what am I willing to do to make the change that we can agree on? Because we might not share faith systems. We may have very different belief systems. We may operate from different ideological, political perspectives. But we can also still find points where we agree with each other that something needs to change or happen, right? We might not agree on what the education should look like, but we can agree that children need education, right? So we start from the place we can agree. And then we start to build out from there. And we continue to find our points of common ground. And then I have a willingness to engage with each other, to learn with and from each other, even where we disagree. And when we do disagree, see if there's a different place that we can go to to meet the need without giving up our integrity. And I think that fundamentally, those are things across time in this culture that we've done. And sometimes we do it really well. And a lot of times we don't. And right now we're in one of those places where we're having to make the hard decisions because we've coasted and we've Mm. maybe felt like, well, haven't we reached the mountaintop that Dr. King talks about? Right. You know, we've got a black president. Racism should be over. Except for racism isn't over. And we definitively know that. Like we have literal data. We Absolutely. have data that says racism is a public health crisis. Um, and, and when we have that, rather than just scoff and say, you can make numbers say whatever you want them to say, riddle me this. Who benefits by denying that that's true? What happens if you lean into that question and say, is racism a public health crisis? And if so, what does tackling racism then mean in our community? Does it suddenly address one of the social determinants of health? 
and improve the quality of life for everybody. And at the end of the day, you come to this place and it's a very sad, scary place because it's not one that we like to go to. And it's one where you have to ask yourself, do I believe that as people, we all have the same value? Or do I believe that some people have more value than others? Because when there is a resistance to finding ways to fill gaps and to meet needs, because we think that somebody should be working harder or making different choices, because they don't live the way that we do or think the way that we do. When we do that, what we're saying is, we value you less as a person. I see you less as a person. I might treat a dog better than I treat you because that dog is a dog. It can't get a job and take care of itself. It needs me. Mm. But you can straighten up and you can finish your education and you can get a job and you can make different choices, right? Without fully considering the context that an individual comes from, whether that's their environment, their family dynamics, access to education, because you know, we say everybody has access to education, and yet we still know that it's not an equitable education because schools are underfunded. How do you get a Title I school and say it has the same ability to educate a student as a school that has a huge tax base to draw from? You know that they're different because people will move so that their children can be in the, in quotes, better school. Happens all the time. Right. So when we start asking ourselves, do we think we are better than other people? That's where the rubber meets the road and it gets really hard. Because if you think you're better than someone else, then you will always be able to explain or justify why a, a process or a policy or a practice that, that excludes, that oppresses, that demeans, that ignores or avoids is okay because you think you're better. And that's- Or because you think, you, sorry, go ahead. What'd you say? I was just gonna say, that's something that none of us wanna grapple with. I mean, that's, you know, looking in the mirror, nobody wants to see that ugly side of themselves if it's there. Right. Or even that you deserve, you know, more or you deserve, you know, more than somebody else. Um, I, I really like that shift in mindset. And I think it is a way forward in that we have to start pitching these more progressive ideas as, you know, we try to you know, get better education to all students in all schools. We try to get better healthcare to all people, regardless of, of you know, socioeconomic status, that in so doing, we it's not that going to take away from somebody to give it to somebody else, but in so doing, we can lift our whole community. And I firmly believe that. I believe that that is where we can go and will go if we can, um, but we there's definitely some heavy lifting that's got to take place in that space that you talked about. We're wrestling with our personal ideas and wrestling with who we are as a country and coming together. There's a lot of heavy lifting to be done. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, there's really important people like yourself and others out there that are doing that work. And we all just have to kind of take that look in the mirror. How are we going to do that? And how are we going to contribute? Absolutely. And I think that at the end of the day, that's what we have to ask ourselves. What am I willing to do to make the difference? 
Am I willing to stand up in a space where there is no benefit to me putting my neck on the line to defend this person or this group of people? But it's the right thing to do. It's one thing to think about, well, of course, this is the right thing to do. It's an entirely different thing to stand up when you have nothing to gain by standing up, to step in for somebody else. Are we willing to do that? And I think we we have become comfortable and confident that somebody else will stand up and do it. And I think that that's sad because history has shown us when we do that, that's when we end up with the Hitlers. That's when we end up with people who, who can't see people as people. Adrian, you're speaking to me right now. Like, I don't know that, that hit me. Um, is there, you know, I've loved this conversation. I've, I've learned a lot and I know you have so much to offer. It, it, you know, with your experience uh, in, in life and, and your job and your career and your education, is there anything else that you would want around this topic for the, for the listener to hear um, as we're wrapping up? Absolutely. And that thing is that when we talk about equity or equality, we can't talk about a pie because a pie mm-hmm. does have limited resources, right? At some point, either the slivers of the pie are going to disappear or I get the whole pie and you don't get any. And that doesn't have to be the world that we operate in because the resources exist. They do. We have to decide whether or not we are willing to let people be recognized in their full humanity. Because as you shared earlier, you know, if people have access or rights, am I going to lose something? What is it that you're going to lose? That sense of superiority? That sense that you're better than someone else? If so, that means that the world you believe we should be living in is one where there's always somebody at the top and there's somebody at the bottom, rather than recognizing we're all people. And we're going to do different things and have different skills and abilities. And some of us are going to be, you know, a genius and build some new microchip that's smaller than the hair on my cat, right? And it contains more information than my phone does right now. And it's an S20, so it's pretty good, I guess, right? Um, But at the same time, somebody else might just win off of a lottery ticket and get a bucket of money. We have to decide whether people are people are people are people and we are all valued or the person who gets lucky on a scratch-off ticket is okay, but the person who created that microchip is the size of a cat's hair is better than, more important than. Or someone who chooses to stay at home and take care of their family um, is It's not as good as somebody who's the VP of a corporation because they don't work as hard when really they are both fundamentally doing the work of the nation. One is creating opportunity for the people of the nation. The other is raising the children of the nation. And both of those things can happen without one of them devaluing the other. That's what I would ask your listeners to consider. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Adrian, for coming on. And that's it for the show today. 
Thanks everybody for listening. I want you to go out and, you know, smash that subscribe button, share the episode with a friend. We are uh, continuing to do our work here. We are also going to take a week off because we need a little break. We've been packing a lot in here during Black History Month. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, final episode of our Black History Month uh, series. And once again, thank you, Decker Yazi, for our artwork and August the Great for our theme music. Guess what? We're going to have August on the pod. I think here in a couple weeks. Pretty exciting stuff. Dan Martinez, as always, with all the editing and producing, he's the man in the background making it all happen. Thanks, everybody. Community Spread is a Deep State Media production. It's produced by me, Kevin Lundell, and directed and edited by Dan Martinez. 